right. Well, Lord, as we encounter you in this text, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to us, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, and Lord, most of all, that you would, you would open our eyes to who you really are, that you would correct our false images of you and our false images of ourselves. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, it is Palm Sunday. If we haven't gone over that, we just had kids processed with their palm branches, so we get that it's Palm Sunday. And Collins just read one of the wonderful Palm Sunday narratives. That one was from uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, and from the perspective of hindsight, like us sitting here in the 21st century, um, interpreting Jesus' actions through the lens of the prophets, it's clear that what he is doing in that moment of riding in on a donkey is he's redefining what it means to be a king, what it means to be Israel's Messiah, and what it means, what it looks like when God is with us. The fact that he rides in on a donkey and not a war horse communicates his humility and his gentleness. The image of a king coming into Jerusalem on a donkey is drawn straight from the prophet Zechariah. Hundreds of years before Jesus even came in on that donkey, Zechariah prophesied these words. I'm quoting, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a you guessed it, a donkey riding on the donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring, bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So, in the traditional Palm Sunday story, we have Jesus literally fulfilling this promise of God's salvation coming through an anointed king who would rule in humility, who would usher in salvation, not through war, but through peace. That's fantastic news. And yet, part of the heart of Palm Sunday, why we keep telling the story over and over again in churches year after year, is because Jesus is just so misunderstood. The crowds gather around Jesus in that story, and they begin rejoicing, and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it seems like a really good response. Spreading out palm branches in the road in front of him. But here's the problem. Palm branches in first century Judaism were a symbol of violent resistance over foreign occupiers. Hundreds of years earlier, before Jesus came in on that donkey, Syria had occupied Israel and tormented their people. And the Maccabee family fought a revolt against them and gained victory for Israel. And one of the things that they did was they celebrated by waving palm branches and laying them before the leaders who brought them victory. So much so was the palm branch a sense of nationalistic military victory that it was minted on the coins around that time of Jesus. Really interesting imagery there. A source, a sign of nat national pride. 
And so here comes Jesus on a donkey communicating a humble, peaceful reign, and yet the people see in him only what they want to see. They want a king who's going to overthrow Rome and avenge them from years of oppression, and the crowds cheer for Jesus, not for who he is, but who they wish he was. In a similar way, the religious leaders are also blind to who Jesus is in the story. Rather than cheer for him like the crowds, they're offended that the crowds are cheering at him and for him. They see Jesus, the way he teaches and the odd way he does things and the odd sorts of people he hangs out with, the fact that he hadn't gone to the right seminary or served in the priesthood like they do, and they don't trust that he could actually be the Messiah, the one they had been waiting for. And so the religious leaders reject Jesus because he doesn't fit their ideal of how they think he should live. Both groups, the crowds and the religious leaders, misunderstand what Jesus is about. They put their expectations on him. They tried to define who he was and what he was going to do for them. And Palm Sunday is the annual reminder for you and me that we are in danger of doing the same thing, like all the time. In every generation and in every culture, we tend to make Jesus in our own image. Right? And sometimes it's a literally we do this, like culturally, like Zoe's going to put up a picture here of white Jesus. Um, we've seen this before, right? So that's, that's clearly made in the image of some probably German, Caucasian, Swedish, I think Swedish, and what you maybe can't see on this, his eyes are super blue like on a computer screen. Um, yeah, and then there's black Jesus. Um, actually, this, Tim McAvoy and I saw this in person on the Caribbean side of Panama when we did a scouting trip together uh, to, to, to plan a trip for our church to go to Panama, and this is um, a, a black Jesus on the, yeah, like I just said, the Caribbean side of Panama. So, so we make him in, in our image if, if that's our image. And, and then there's Asian Jesus, right? Um, and, and this is a picture of John the Baptist in, in Asian style. And, and so no matter what culture we are or time we live in, we do this literally with how we imagine Jesus. But most often, we're less concerned about what he looks like. And we make him in our image when we imagine that he thinks like us. That he's sympathetic to our politics. That he cares about the issues and perspectives that we hold on those issues, right? And the the problem, of course, is that unless we pause and reflect, like on purpose and intentionally, we can't help but make Jesus somewhat in our image. Like, we only know our perspective. It's really difficult. It takes a lot of effort to get in the shoes of someone else. And that really compounds the problem because what happens is my Jesus compels me to act in a way that I think is a a certain way, but what if your version of Jesus compels you to act in a different way, uh, to think in a different way than I do, and now we're all of a sudden in conflict, and what we're arguing about is my image of Jesus versus your image of Jesus, and what gets lost is Jesus. So what are we supposed to do? I mean, are we destined to repeat this Palm Sunday levels of misunderstanding year after year? Is there any way forward? Yeah, I, I, I think there is a way forward. I think there is a way forward. And I think the first 
thing, and you'll hear me say this all the time, is I think the first thing we need to do is, is have a posture of humility. Posture of humility. We need to recognize that to some degree, we all have assumptions about Jesus that are less than 100% accurate. That's being super generous. <laughs> we all have perceptions of Jesus that are less than 100% accurate. Living with an attitude of humility, I think, is going to help us keep learning. Because if you're humble, you can't possibly stop and say, I know everything there is to know. Right? So it's going it to help us to keep learning. And I think true humility is going to also help us to interact with other people. And to recognize that I might be wrong and they might be wrong. And, and, and so let me not put final judgment on others so quickly, right? Equally important to a posture of humility is that we keep our eyes on Jesus. You can't do, like, I'm not saying one over the other. You gotta keep our eyes on Jesus. And and that's exactly why that we gather for worship each week, and we are not, I hope, I know that you're not here for my best ideas. I'm never preaching my best ideas, right? Uh, We're not rooted in my best ideas about who Jesus is. We're not rooted in any guest preacher's idea of, of who Jesus is. We're not starting here um, in sermons and songs. We're not starting with someone else's tradition of who Jesus is. We're rooted in the biblical text. We're rooted in the biblical story. We want to see Jesus clearly. We want to attempt to hear him in his context without importing our perspectives and our positions onto him and onto the Bible. That's what we're trying to do. And this evening, we're going to pick up the story of Jesus in Mark chapter 3. Last week, we saw how Jesus was healing the sick, and he was setting people free from demonic oppression. He then gathers his big group of disciples up on a mountain, and he chooses 12 from them, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, as if creating a new community of God centered on Jesus. And what I'm going to read now from Mark 3 20 through 35 is what happens next. And I want you to pay attention to the motif or to the theme of inside and outside. And to help you do that, uh, Zoe's going to have the text on the screen. So we can just follow along. And I've, I've done the, the duty of underlining things, right? So, so we went into a house and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they couldn't even eat a meal. When his family heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed or inhabited by, inhabited by, Beelzebul. He casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he'll plunder the house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven people and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, 
but is guilty of an eternal sin because they're saying he has an unclean spirit. Well, then his mother and his brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him. They said, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at all those sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and my brother and sister. All right, thanks, Zoe. Quite, quite a story. Let's just start working through it, and we're going to make some observations along the way. The first thing I think that we notice is that Jesus has gone inside a house, and the crowds who continue to follow him in Mark's gospel so far, once again, they've converged upon him. People are attracted to him. Like, this is a guy who heals people and sets them free from all sorts of things. He has, like, weird demonic oppression, but also he restores people into community again. He sets them free from the heavy burdens of guilt and feeling like they can never measure up to the law, feeling outside with the religious authorities, uh, feeling oppressed by the Romans, feeling oppressed by, uh, by their guilt and shame and trauma, and Jesus is setting them free. People feel alive around him, and that's attractive, and so they press in around him, they want to be around him. And I think what's just so great is that they're attracted to this guy who, who lets them on the inside, even though they're not the smartest necessarily, or the most holy necessarily, or the most socially popular necessarily. In fact, people are so taken with Jesus that he and his disciples are having a hard time finding time to eat. The crowds are responding well to Jesus. They're seeking him. They may not know a lot of theology yet, but man, they're casting their cares on him. They're trusting him. And that's about as biblical version of trusting God as you can get. Then we're introduced to some different characters in the story. Jesus' family learns that he's become sort of the center of this attention, and they heard that he might be at odds with the religious leaders, and they heard that he's causing disturbances in the towns and places where he visits. And Mary may have heard that her precious Jewish son is not getting a good meal every day, right? Uh, Mama's out there, you know if your kid goes off, you, you want to make sure that they're fed, so this is probably bothering her. And as the story goes, the family went out, the text says, to take custody of Jesus, literally to seize him. It's the same word that later on the soldiers will seize Jesus when he's arrested. And they'd want to set out and to seize him or to collect him or to bring him back into the fold of the family because they think he's out of his mind. You have to appreciate really hard to wrap my mind around this too, but you have to appreciate that in first century Mediterranean culture, society was glued together by the unspoken values of honor and shame, deeply rooted in how people thought about everything. 
So unlike our very individualistic culture, every person in the first century Mediterranean world, every person in a family and even in a town, they're, they're tied together. Their relationships are tied together in such a way that if someone did something worthy of honor in a family, that whole family would receive the honor and the whole hometown would receive the honor. It's sort of like in a small town, like I went to Eastern Washington University for a little bit and at that time it was the... Uh, you know, the home of Steve Entman, right? The great defensive lineman for the Washington Huskies in the 90s. Come on, Purple Haze. Um, or, or like, you know, um, was it Nancy has like the I walk with Jake Locker's grandma or something like that. Like, we're proud when we're from a small town of, uh, of the honor that these special people bring to our town, right? And, and that, that's how it was multiplied times a million. Uh, honor and shame could just be won and lost and, and it affected everyone in the family and in the town, So what's likely happening here is that Mary and Jesus' siblings are deeply concerned about Jesus' behavior. But they're also concerned that his behavior is bringing shame on them and their family and the town that they live in. They may have even had pressure from town elders saying, get your son in check because he's bringing like the name of Nazareth down with him. We don't want this kind of press. And so the family of Jesus head out to take custody of him. And if we jump to the end of the passage, we see that they arrive at the house. They're outside the house. Jesus, though, is inside the house with the crowds, with the people that are actually following him. Jesus' family don't go inside, but they send a representative inside to tell Jesus that they've arrived. And the implication is that Jesus should then go out, like your mom is out there, traveled all this way to come see you, The implication is that he ought to, as a good son, go outside and to receive kind of the judgment of his behavior, to maybe be a little bit scolded, and then like, come on, son, we're going home. We're going to figure some things out. Now, Jesus does something that's not only shocking, it's extremely controversial. His mother is outside, and so are his brothers, but rather than going out, he takes a moment to teach, to make an important point. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around to the people who are following him inside the house, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And in this moment, Jesus is redefining the bonds of family. See, in Jewish culture, nothing was more important than blood relations except obedience to God. And what's fascinating and shocking is that Jesus is claiming that allegiance to him is more important than family. And that the will of God is to trust Jesus. John chapter 6 is a similar scenario. There's crowds following Jesus, and they're saying to him, Jesus... What must, me, what must we do to work the works of God or to do the will of God? And Jesus answers them with this. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's Jesus. In other words, the will of God is to believe in Jesus, to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus, even if it puts us at odds with our family 
even if it puts us at odds with some cultural norms or some popular opinions. Let, let me just say explicitly before you freak out, um, Jesus is not like rejecting his family, but he is saying that allegiance to him is thicker than blood. Allegiance to Jesus is the glue that binds together the global family of God as much as it ties us together as one local church. Notice the motif of inside and outside. Jesus is inside the house. The crowds are also inside the house. Jesus' family sets out to take control of him. Jesus' family thinks he's out of his mind. Jesus' family comes to the house, but they stand outside. Jesus' spiritual mother and brothers and sisters of the faith are inside. And the way Mark has organized the story is just, am I in or out? I think that's the question to his original hearers and to his later readers like us. Am I in or am I out? I gotta point out, this is such good news. Like the question isn't a question we're asking Jesus. Jesus, am I in or am I out? What we see in Jesus is him receiving all the people who come to him all the people who trust him, all the people who follow him. Jesus invites all of us in. The question isn't, does Jesus invite us in or out? The question is not, will Jesus let me in? The question is, do I want to be in? Or am I still resisting him? Am I still outside because I'm not quite sure I want to really follow him? Because maybe I'm not sure I want to feel at odds with the prevailing winds of culture. It's hard work. You know it's hard work. Students, you know it's hard work. It's hard for us, too, if you think it's easy. It's not. Maybe I'm standing on the outside because I, I don't want to love my enemies. I don't want to pray for those who persecute me. I don't want to let go of this anger I feel about this person or that person who did me wrong. I don't want to adhere to these weird biblical sexual ethics, monogamy, and, except for in marriage and, 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 and celibacy outside of marriage. I don't want to deal with that, so I'm going to stand outside. Um, uh, maybe I don't want to give part of my hard-earned resources to the poor and to the church. I, 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 I'll stand out here, Jesus. I'm fine watching you from a distance. Do I really want Jesus to have authority over my life, or am I resisting and standing outside? I, th I, think, I think that's the question that Mark brings in this passage. I just invite us to hold that thought. Hold that thought. Because now we're going to look at the heart of the passage. Mark has arranged this text using a, a, a well-known rhetorical device, sometimes called sandwiching. That's kind of the lay person's term, so we're going to call it sandwiching. And here's a visual representation of the sandwiching that is going on in this very closed, it's called a pericope, it's a, it's a part of the, the passage of, 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 of Mark chapter 3 that is intentionally put together this way. Mark is retelling this story that actually happened in a way that he can teach with. Now, let me ask you something. Anyone out there like sandwiches? Dan, what's your favorite sandwich? Uh, kind of yeah, That's a good sandwich. Chaz, did you have your hand up? Yeah. What are you doing? What, what kind of sandwich are we doing? Um, I'll, uh, oh, yeah. Dallas, 
I could eat, I could eat with you guys. Anyone else? Sandwiches? Got a, got a good one? Wayne, what do you like? Ham and cheese. I like that. Oh, man. You're making me hungry. I'm going to stop right there. I just want to point out that everyone, you know, when we talk about a sandwich, we talk about what's in the sandwich, aren't we? I love bread, but the bread serves a purpose, right? Um, it's, it's what's in the middle that we usually talk about. We don't, we don't talk about, like, um, sourdough sandwiches. We maybe say a grilled cheese with sourdough bread. You know what I'm saying? So we talk about, we define our sandwiches by what's in the middle, in literary sandwiches, it's the middle that's intentionally the main point of the story. The middle of the sandwich in a literary sandwich gives meaning to the bread parts. So in this story, Jesus is confronted by religious leaders who see him doing mighty deeds, casting out demons. They can't deny that he's doing these things but they conclude that he can't be from God because he doesn't fit their image of um, what a Messiah ought to look like. And so they, they, they can't deny he's doing these things, but they don't want to concede that he's from God. What else could give him this power? I know, he's getting power from evil. He's getting power from the prince of demons. That's how he's doing it. And they accuse Jesus of drawing his power from an evil source. Now, the scribes notice that they use outside language as well. They claim that Jesus is possessed, literally inhabited, by Beelzebul. What the heck is that? Beelzebul sounds like a Hebrew word that can mean Lord of the Flies, which is a euphemism for Lord of things that flies land on, dung, right? Okay, so that's it's kind of a, uh, yeah, it's a nasty, nasty word. Uh, but it can also mean Lord of the House, which is likely a reference to the Satan, who at that time was known as the head of the house, meaning head of the world, not, not the created world. There's a little side thing here, like in the Bible, we talk about there's a word for earth, and then there's a word for the world. Earth and the world. So the earth, creation, that's always good in the Bible. Creation is good, it's created by God. The world is human society organized around anything except God. So when Paul is talking about, you know, uh, the world, or you can't love the world, when we hear uh, Jesus say things like that, uh, or, or James say, in the world, but not of the world, they're not talking about anything wrong with creation or physical things or, or, or the earth. They're talking about the way of society that's not organized on God. And so the Satan was known as Beelzebul, or Lord of the house, Lord of the world, set up in opposition to God. That's who they think Jesus is getting his power from. And Jesus says, your, your logic is lame. He, that's not in the Bible, but I, I'm just interpreting. Um, he basically says, does it make any sense at all that Satan would give a person power to counter his own demons, to set people free from demonic oppression that he did. And so Jesus offers another alternative. So like the fact that Jesus is setting people free from demonic oppression can't be the result of, of Satan sabotaging his own work. So the other option is that maybe someone stronger than Beelzebul has broken into the Lord of the house's house. Maybe someone stronger has broken in. 
Maybe Beelzebul, the strong man of the house which is set against God, has been defeated by a stronger man. Maybe that's why you're seeing demonic forces flee and the reign of Satan falling. Maybe Jesus has entered the strong man's house and is plundering it, rescuing captives. If you're a fan at all of the Narnia books, remember in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the White Witch had cast that spell on all of these wonderful people, and they're like stone statues in her castle. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And Aslan, right, the Jesus figure, runs over the wall and and starts to breathe the breath of life on them, and they're released and, and given new life. That's kind of what is happening here. The strong man has come and plundered the castle, plundered the house of Beelzebul, and that reign is now over. So at the heart of the sandwich, Jesus claims that he is here to forgive any sin that you could possibly repent of. But the one sin that he's unable to forgive is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And and in this one verse, oh, so many well-meaning Christians, including myself for a time, uh, have been caused anxiety like, oh, what if I did it? What if I did the unforgivable sin and then I can never be forgiven and I'm so... How would I ever know? Well, let me just give you some comfort. Of course, there's the old pastoral cliche that if you're worried about committing the unpardonable sin, you probably haven't done it. Um, things are cliches for a reason because there's a lot of truth to them, right? So, so there, there is that. But the point here is that the unforgivable sin isn't, like, I don't know what you think blasphemy is. It's not like cursing some bad words about the Holy Spirit. It's not like, oh, Holy Spirit, let me down, or, you know, saying some some offhanded thing. Um, It's attributing the work of God to evil. Jesus will forgive any and all who come to him with repentant hearts and desire to trust him. But if your heart is so hard that you can't trust him, if you believe that Jesus is from evil, if he's unworthy of your trust, It's not like you've broken some magic code and like now you can never come back from that. The point is that if you can't trust Jesus, if you think he's evil, you won't come to him for repentance. And the only way you can be forgiven is to come to Jesus for repentance. That's that's like the only thing. And so it's sort of a uh, catch-22. The good news is that Jesus has defeated the strong man. He has overthrown the house of evil. And he bids us to come inside and to receive freedom from sin and death. And he calls us to to trust him for forgiveness and new life. And I just love that you don't see in anywhere in these biblical texts Jesus requiring perfection or perfect faith or life without doubts. He just calls us to come to him. And so the question is, for me and for you, is how do we respond to that call? Are we in or are we out? Resistant or, Lord, we're coming in with all of our baggage, but we're leaning on you. I'm going to, um, to actually just lead us into the time of the table because that, that is a great way to respond to that question.